Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Anthony Hughes of NUI Maynooth. His paper was entitled The Stuart Post Office in Ireland, Not Just for Delivering Letters. I'm just going to do, it's unusual in that most people are dealing with Pacific, I'm dealing with an overarching subject, which is the post office, so it's, it's not quite Pacific like a lot of other topics we've heard here this weekend. The principal aim of this talk is to tell the narrative of the early post office in Ireland and illustrate just how important it was uh, and what its functions were to the administration of Ireland at the beginning of the 1630s until the death of Queen Anne in 1714. The common perception of the post office is an institution that collected and delivered letters. However, it was much more. It was the artery to which almost all communications flowed. It basically carried three types of mail. First and foremost, it carried all state communications. It was an essential ingredient of commerce, and finally, it carried a private correspondence of individuals. If you compare the 17th century state with a combustible engine, petrol is the money that keeps the state going. Oil is the oft-forgotten ingredient, vital ingredient, that ensures the machinery and its different components or departments operate efficiently. The post office is the oil that ensures the state runs smoothly, every state for that matter. The post office supplied the state with three basic services. Not only was it the communications, its communications network, it was the eyes and ears of the state, and thirdly, in England, not so much in Ireland, it was a very important provider of revenue for the state. Almost all documents the state generates, such as royal proclamations, court writs, tax demands, customs returns, were carried by the post office. The different departments of state and the many branches throughout the country had to communicate with the centre, be it Dublin or London, with each other. They did this via the post. From an Irish perspective, it was the link between Dublin and London, London and Dublin, and Dublin and the provinces. It was the primary means of communication for the army and the navy when its ships were in port. In other words, it carried all civil and military dispatches. Army didn't have its own internal, it used the post office. The second service the post office provided to the state was intelligence gathering. In Ireland, outside of Dublin, the post office was the eyes and ears of Dublin Castle. The postal system consisted of a network of men and women. We've seen in an earlier talk today how women ran the taverns, a lot of taverns. They worked for the post office as well. Uh, Throughout the country, that were in regular contact two or three times a week. Remember, very few other, no other State Department was in contact every week, two or three times with the centre. Um, Dublin Castle harnessed this network to provide it and London with local intelligence. The best example of this is the postmaster in Kinsale, one Thomas Burroughs, who wrote weekly to James Hicks, who was clerk of the Chester Road in the post office in Dublin. Hicks reported directly to Joseph Williamson, who, quote, according to his biographer, was in effect the de facto head of the Restoration Government's intelligence system, end quote. 
Williamson was using much of the information supplied by Burroughs for his news gazettes. And he was also most likely using the commercial information he was getting for his friends. Because you must remember Kinsale was the first port of call for outward ships going to the West Indies and first call of port of call for inward, homeward bound ships. So he had the information from Burroughs quicker than the merchants in London had it. He could use that in the stock exchange for his own use or for his friends' use. While Burroughs was supplying Hicks with the nitty-gritty military and commercial intelligence, in Dublin, the Dublin Postmaster General, the Deputy Postmaster General for Ireland, George Warburton, was keeping Williamson informed of the larger political picture. Not only were the postmasters supplying information, letters were regularly open to gather intelligence. This was normally done in Dublin in London, and, or London. The secret room in London, its staff and its visits there by Charles II are well documented, not so in Ireland. However, we do have many references to and complaints about letters being opened in Ireland. The third, source of, third, the third service mentioned above was that of revenue. By the mid-1630s, the state's postal system was costing almost 4000 a year to run. Charles I allowed this post office, as a, sorry, Royal Post, as it was then known, to officially carry the public's letters for a fee, hence making it self-financing. Immediately it began making money, and by the time of the Commonwealth was being farmed out, this gives you an idea of the figures it was making, um, within 70 years of its beginning, the public post office became one of the major contributors of finance to the English exchequer. English exchequer, even the Irish money that was generated by the Irish post office went to the English exchequer. The Irish post office was seen as a branch of London. Uh, the 1757 Act makes that quite clear. Cromwell's Act makes that quite clear. One of the main functions of the... Sorry, the 1657 Act. One of the main functions of the 1711 Act, Post Office Act, was to guarantee this flow of money and ensure it came to the state. It done this by making sure uh, only the state could carry letters. There was two exceptions to that, Oxford and Cambridge, why they all went, they could organise their own private post. Ray has just mentioned about towns and commerce in the previous lecture. Even though the post office primarily saved the state, it was financed by mercantile mail. The most important ingredient of commerce is that of a commodity or service that can be bought or sold. That's fairly obvious. For this to happen, the buyer and the seller must communicate. The further apart the buyer and seller are, the more sophisticated and expensive this communication becomes. After 1733, this communications was carried for the most part by the post office for a hefty fee, but a lot cheaper and more regular than the previous means of commercial communication. Uh, if you want to see just how expensive and how awkward it was for mercantile mail, um, the Carcini letters, there's only nine of them from Ireland, but they mention the difficulty in communicating, two of them are from Mallow. And they mentioned the difficulty in getting mail letters out of Mallow. Social correspondence. By the 1600s, the ability to read and write had percolated down the social scale. Towards the end of the Stuart era, much of the land in Ireland was occupied by new owners. Many of these colonists lived in isolated areas away from home, 
regular letters to and from friends or re- and relations was important. The cheapest, most reliable and often the only way of communicating was via the post office. This played an essential role in keeping the colonists British. In other words, preventing them becoming more Irish than the Irish themselves, as is said to have happened to the Normans. Now let's turn to the narrative of the Irish post office and see how it fits into this scheme. Unlike in Britain and other countries, little or no research has been carried out concerning the early post office in Ireland, as sources are few and scattered. As already demonstrated, uh, it has already been demonstrated why the post office was of such importance to the state. As a result, with the change of each regime, one of the first institutions, the new institution needed command of was the post office, both in Ireland and England. In England, this generated copious amounts of paperwork, most likely in Ireland as well. Unfortunately, little of it has survived. But we do get glimpses of the various struggles for control of it in the state papers and other archives. In England, Brian Turk, Henry the Eighth's master of the post is the earliest recorded postmaster. He was responsible for the state's official communications. In 1735, Charles I authorised by royal proclamation one Thomas Withering to reorganise this royal post, its network of post roads, allowing him, as earlier stated, to officially carry private letters and granting him a monopoly on the carrying of such letters. All letters had to go through an office in London, and originally horses went from post to post to post. In Edward's time in Scotland, Edward III's conquest of Scotland, the word post comes from horses going from post to post to change horses, and the word office comes from a central office in London. All mail, for security reasons, had to go to a central office, hence the word post office. The proclamation stated that one of the roads was to run, quote, to Holyhead, and from hence to Ireland, according to the provisions made there by the Lord Deputy and Council. Unquote. This comment implies there was no organised post outside Dublin at this time. In 1638, probably at the behest of Lord Deputy Wentworth, Abe Vaughan arrived in Ireland and began establishing networks of post roads similar to those Withering had established in England. There is little evidence of his early work. Nevertheless, surviving documents suggest he was successful, as in 1641, the two Chief Justices, Parsons and Burles, described Vaughan thus, he has with diligence and care done his duty in the letter office, unquote. The leading merchants of Dublin also testify to their satisfaction with his work. Soon after the outbreak of the English Civil War, Vaughan returned to England and fought with the Duke of Ormond on the Royalist side. Nothing is known of the post office in Ireland for the next ten turbulent years. Indeed, it is even doubtful if there was one. It was not until 1652 that any kind of normality returned to the country. A letter that year from the Commissioner to the Committee of Irish Postal Affairs states that the postal network had completely collapsed. This state of affairs was about to change. In 1655, Vaughan arrived back in Ireland and an order was issued, quote, that the post agents be settled by A. Vaughan in Ireland, for which he is to receive payment, unquote. He had huge difficulty receiving that. He had to go to court to get that payment. Uh, as a result, more, he went to court in London, so we learn a lot about the early post office from those papers. 
1656, his 1656 account indicates that there were three post roads and 24 post towns in Ireland. Three years later, he reported there were 45 post towns in Ireland and also stated it cost £1,932.16 and 8D to run the Irish post office. The Dublin office employed 10 officials at a cost of 300, uh, sorry, at £730. In 1658, one Samuel Bathurst was sent to Ireland by John Turlough, Oliver Cromwell's Secretary of State and head of his Secret Service. Turlough's state papers revealed Bathurst was sent over with instructions to replace Vaughan. Nevertheless, or sorry, this resulted in the first of many struggles for control of the Irish Post Office. However, Bohan was not easily shifted. He acquired allies and character references. At least three of these references are recorded in the state papers. I'll come back to that picture again if any of you more want to see it. All expressing satisfaction with his work. You can see um, again the, the, the reference state. This is the full reference almost. Armies of the horses will be eased, public business and attention of merchants. You can see the, the public business merchants again. All expressed satisfaction when it worked. These references were signed by important supporters, supporters of Parliament, by ex and future royalists. The Connacht document includes the signature of the Earl of Huntington in England, Sir Charles Coote, later first Earl of Mount Rath, and at the time MP, President of Connacht, and trusted friend of Henry Cromwell. Remember, Vaughan was a, was a royalist. Many other high-ranking officials and important merchants also signed these references. Bathurst failed to oust Vaughan, and both continued to work in the post office with Vaughan as deputy postmaster. In 1662, Vaughan disappeared from the official records. The evidence indicates Vaughan was capable ran an efficient service and organised a postal network to the satisfaction of those who used it. In contrast, there is nothing good said of Bathurst. In fact, he was in dispute with many officials. Although unpopular, Bathurst possessed other skills required by the government, including letter opening and gathering intelligence. His seat in the 1661 Irish Parliament, where he sat as MP for Sligo, may have been a reward for such services. It's interesting to see throughout the 1700s what seats the Postmaster Generals hold. It's usually seats controlled by the Speaker of the House of Commons, of the Irish House of Commons, so they're usually very trusted men and they're put in very safe seats, or they're given seats as a reward. However, the political sands were shifting. As the Post Office was such import, of, of such importance and in, uh, ingredient in the smooth running of the state, it was vital that it was in trusted hands. As a result, after the Restoration, there was once again a struggle for control of the post office in Ireland and England. Eventually in England, in 1663, the Irishman, Daniel O'Neill, became Postmaster General when he acquired a farm of the post office for £10,000. O'Neill had led a colourful life. He was a nephew of Owen Rowe O'Neill, related to the great Hugh O'Neill, was a prominent royalist, had fought with Charles during the Civil War, followed them into exile, 
While O'Neill was in exile, he undertook many dangerous missions for Charles. He was the <coughs> ultimate in as far as Cavaliers were concerned. If you want to read about a Cavalier, this is your man. But most importantly, he was close to and trusted by Charles II. One of O'Neill's first acts when he, was, when he replaced Bathurst in Ireland was to, was to replace Bathurst in Ireland with one Robert Ward. However, Bathurst resisted and the resulting dispute also involved the king. In April 1663, the king, in a letter to the Lord Lieutenant, on behalf of O'Neill, gave instructions that Ward was to replace Bathurst, as Bathurst had been appointed by Turlough, and the king actually says that in his letter. Many letters were exchanged between the Secretary Bennett in London and the Lord Lieutenant in Ireland concerning this issue. The Lord Lieutenant was in favour of retaining Bathurst, Bathurst was summoned to London but resisted going. However, in February 1664, the Lord Lieutenant informed Bennett, quote, Bathurst has not for some time had anything to do with postage, unquote. Bathurst seems to have eventually gone to London, as in March of that year he is listed as missing from the Irish Parliament and in England. Strange enough, so is O'Neill. It was not known if Ward became Deputy Postmaster for Ireland, other than the laid packets, usually due to bad weather, little is recorded concerning the post office for the next few years. We do know that by 1666, when George Warburton was working in the post office in Dublin, and as already stated, writing regular reports on the Irish situation to James, to Joseph Williamson, head of what today would be called MI5 or the Secret Service. With the accession of the Catholic James II, once again there was a struggle for control of the post office in Ireland. This time between the Protestant supporters of Parliament and the Catholic supporters of James II. Remember, Tyr Connell is rambling around the country at this stage. Warburton was in trouble. Though this had little to do, and may have had as much to do with money as the political situation. He was in arrears in his payments to the English Treasury and blamed this trouble on the political situation. He later stated in an address to the Lord Treasury, now he said this after 1690, how, as a strict Protestant, James II had replaced him with a papist and stated many Protestant postmasters had also been replaced. I do know that was happening in England, so I assume he's telling the truth. Uh, I take, tend to take him with a pinch of salt because he was always in financial difficulty. He was later reinstated by William III after the Battle of the Boyne. The importance of the post office at this time is also reflected in the fact that both James II and William, while in Ireland, issued almost identical proclamations forbidding interference with the post, especially post horses, and exempting local postmasters from having to quarter soldiers. Also in England in 1690, when 6,000 was being set aside for the Secret Service, 4,000 went to the post office. That gives you an idea of how important the post office was in espionage circles, for want of a better way of putting it. In 1703, Warburton was again in financial difficulty. Isaac Manley was sent over from London to examine the books and subsequently replaced Warburton. The first time a deputy postmaster in Ireland had been replaced for a reason other than politics. Manley would have seen, been seen by the Castle administration in whose interest it was to keep a tight rein on the post office as a safe pair of hands. His salary of 2000 was soon increased to the substantial sum of 600 
and he was elected MP for Downpatrick. In 1711 election in England, when the Tories were an overwhelming majority, it looked as if Manley, a Whig, who was unpopular among the Irish in London, being accused, guess what, of opening letters, <laughs> would lose his job. However, like many, however, he had many Tory friends, among them Dean Jonathan Swift. Stella and uh, Manley were in the same uh, card-playing school and continued to hold the position until his death in 1738, long after the Stuart reign had ceased. To conclude, the post office is oft-forgotten and yet vital cog in the machinery of state. It provided the state with a communications system, an intelligence-gathering mechanism and revenue. It enabled commerce and carried the private correspondence of individuals. In Ireland during the 17th century, it was an important component in the extension of Westminster's writ in Ireland. This importance is reflected in the many struggles for control of it and the fact that no Irishman was ever trusted with its management. That continued right up to 1922. Without a working post office, effectively controlled by Dublin Castle, the governing of Ireland would have proven a lot more difficult and expensive and possibly have taken a lot longer to have, it, to have achieved. While the oil in the engine enables the state, the state to operate efficiently, the post office in Ireland was and still is forgotten by historians. Hopefully this talk will go a little bit to the rest of that.